Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I wonder if you've ever heard this term before. We might talk about a savior or a messiah complex. In fact, I just sounded like I was British. I said messiah, messiah complex. Have you ever heard of this? I know it's true because it exists on the internet and therefore it is true, right? I searched it. Google told me it's right. So therefore it exists. There's a, a doctor, Dr. Maury Joseph, describes some symptoms of a savior complex. It is an attraction to vulnerability to try and change people. It's this need to find a solution, uh, to make excessive personal sacrifices for another's sake. And you might think that you're the only one that can help, and you help for all the wrong reasons. Some negative outcomes, they say, of having this Savior or Messiah complex are burnout, disrupted relationships, a sense of failure, unwanted mood swings, depression, resentment, anger, all of these things are kind of the byproducts of us having this orientation toward ourselves that we are a Savior, that we are a Messiah, as it were. It stands out to me this morning that ironically, the person with the Savior complex is also needy. The compulsion to fix someone else puts them in constant state of need for another person to fix. The truth is, no matter how competent we are this morning, we are in need. You and I this morning have need for food, water, shelter. You have needs that you're not even aware of this morning. We've been walking through the book of Exodus, and Exodus lays itself out in this really interesting way where, where God shows himself to Israel, and then Israel responds in kind of letdown and failure. So in Exodus 1 through 15, we see this uh, dramatic story of God's saving work. He reveals himself to Moses. He says, I am that I am. That's who I am. And he reveals himself in power through uh, deliverance from Egypt. And then when we get to chapters 16 and 17, Israel responds with this state of grumbling and quarreling. Massa and Meribah, like we heard about last week. When God shows himself to them at Mount Sinai, there's lightning and thunder and fire all on top of this mountain as God gives his commandments to Moses. And then Israel responds by making a golden calf. See, what we see through the book of Exodus is we see this constant revelation of God, and it sets up this knowledge of God. And then as we know who God is, we start to learn more about who we are in response. See, Israel responds to God's powerful providence, his goodness to the people of Israel through their own weakness and need, that they are a people beset with weakness. They don't need just food and water. They need a firm, confronting hand to address the hardness of their heart. See, if God is powerful to save, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus to be weak and needy. Our Messiah complexes are just another fig leaf covering for our humanity. And what I expect that we'll find in 
Exodus chapter 17 this morning is this, is that God uses weakness to showcase his sovereign power. That God uses our weakness, our inherent weakness, to kind of highlight his continuing and ongoing salvation that he will do amidst his people. We're going to see this in two primary phases in our in our passage this morning. First, we're going to see that God uses limitation to bring victory in verses 8 through 13, and then in verses 14 through 16, that God promises his justice towards sinners. And I want to kind of uh, pull those two threads together and talk about how God shows himself powerful to those who are weak. We're going to start here this morning. God uses his limitation, or our limitation, that came out wrong. God has no limitation. We have limitation. God uses our limitation to bring victory. Look at verses 8 through 13 this morning of Genesis chapter, Exodus chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so that they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You're saying, what on earth is going on here? Let's try to untangle what's happening here first. Amalek comes to Rephidim. And if you're like me, you're saying, who on earth is this guy Amalek, right? It's, we go back to Genesis 36. We find this uh, genealogy that Moses gives us. And Amalek is one of the sons of Esau. If you remember who Esau was, Esau was Jacob's older brother who Jacob deceived and stole the birthright from, causing no small amount of bitterness between these two brothers, to the extent that Jacob, the night before he's supposed to go and meet his brother after years and years of not seeing him, waits up all night in nervous anxiety about meeting Esau again. Well, this tension apparently hasn't gone by the wayside. It's still here. There still seems to be this tension between these two clans, these two brothers, Israel on one side, Amalek as the descendants of Esau on the other side. And so these descendants of Esau, these Amalekites come to fight Israel at the perfectly wrong time, right? It says that they're in Rephidim. That's what we just read about last week where there was no water. These people are weary. They're tired. They've had to go through these uh, processes just to collect food in the mornings. God has faithfully provided for them, but this is not an ideal time to be at war. And so Moses initiates a plan in verse 9. Look what he says. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. He tells Joshua to go fight. Joshua's being the young man, Moses being the old man. You don't want to send octogenarians out to battle, right? It just isn't going to work well. Moses has recognized his weakness. He's saying, Joshua, this is your part. You're going to fight the battle. I'm going to go up on the hill. But it's evident here this morning that it's not just that Moses just doesn't want to be a part of the battle. He recognizes somehow, I think, through 
uh, God's revelation to him or whatever else, that, that he has a different purpose in this. He tells Joshua that he's going up the hill with this staff of God. Seems like Moses already knows what's about to happen. The staff played prominently last week. It was the means by which God provided water for his people. It's the means by which God inflicted all of these plagues on the nation of Egypt. And so Moses is taking this staff with him to the top of the hill. Now notice how this plan has a few hiccups in it. Verses 10 through 12 show us what happens. Verse 11, Moses is at the center of this battle unwittingly. It's every time he holds up his hands, presumably uh, the the Israelites win, and when he lets down his hands because he's tired and weary, the uh, Amalekites start to win. I wanted to be there when he started to figure that out, like he raises his hands and everybody's like, hey, they were winning. Okay, good. And then they lets them out and they start to lose. And then he raises his hand like, how long did they have to go through that before he figured out that was the case? It's kind of like the sports fan who uh, thinks that his team is winning because he's standing up or his right hand is in his hip pocket or whatever else. And he has to hold that position throughout the rest of the game. I remember being in this very room when the Browns played the Steelers and Chad Curtis stood through the entire game convinced that's how we were winning that game. See, Moses adjusts uh, to the situation, and he has this stone brought out for him in verse 12, and Aaron and Hur hold his hands up. I mean, just imagine this scene. You've got this octogenarian sitting on the stone and these two guys holding up the hands of this old man so that the nation of Israel down below can win. See, this isn't just some arbitrary thing that's happening. God is actually showing himself powerful in the midst of this situation. He's taken Moses out of the game, as it were. He's not the one fighting on the ground. In fact, his hands are raised in the air. He has nothing he can really do. He's showing himself faithful and and competent and powerful amidst Moses' weakness. And in fact, if we look at all the characters involved, whether it's Joshua or Aaron or her or Moses, nobody can do what they do alone. Everyone needs the other counterparts around them. Moses needs Joshua down in the battlefield. Moses needs Aaron and her to hold his hands up. Her needs Moses and Joshua. Joshua needs Moses. Everyone needs one another. Nobody is there in and of themselves and can do it by themselves. They all need one another. All of these men called to lead Israel in various capacities need one another in this moment. So we get the outcome in verse 13. Joshua overwhelms Amalek and his people with the sword. What's interesting about this passage is it never tells us explicitly that God did this. It never says God gave victory to Israel over the Amalekites, but it's kind of baked into the very narrative of what's happening. The closest we come is that the staff of God goes with Moses up the hill. And Moses, as he lifts his hands, uh, highlights that he's powerless and that God is in absolute control of this situation. Once again, God is preserving his people by sovereignly intervening amidst their neediness. I was talking to a Marine recently, and they were describing going through uh, training as a Marine. They culminated to this 50-mile hike that happened over a period of a couple of days, and they had these 
uh, weighted backpacks on. And it was kind of this training exercise. But this person who was training to be a Marine was at the end of the line. And they're coming down this mountain at the end of this long two-day, 50-mile hike with this weighted backpack. And he's just watching these Marines fall over from utter exhaustion. See, the truth is that these men knew exactly what they needed to do. They simply needed to walk themselves down the hill, but their physical bodies could not carry them to the finish line. They could not accomplish the very thing that they knew they needed to do. See, you and I, no matter how strong we think we are, we are weak. As much as Moses tried his arms were too weak to be held into the air. No matter how much he knew what needed to be accomplished, he could not accomplish it in and of himself. By the way, that seems to be the emphasis from these chapters. If we kind of back up to the story of uh, of, uh, the Song of Moses in chapter 15, right after that, as soon as the Israelites kind of head out into the wilderness and they're making their way to Sinai, it's like they're just beset with all kinds of weakness. They can't get water. They can't get food. They can't get water again. And every time they're met with these obstacles, they grumble and complain and quarrel. And it highlights that these people in Israel are weak. They're sinful. They're beset with all of this weakness. And it's not just the people of Israel, it's their leader, Moses, here, who's also weak. And in the next chapter, there's just so much need that is just pounding down upon Moses. He needs other people around him. He's beset with his own weakness. See, God reveals himself in Exodus 3 to Moses, and he says, uh, Moses says, well, who should I tell him that sent me? What's, What's your name that I can tell Israel that you're sending me? Because God had never revealed his name to these Israelites. And he says, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I'm the one who comes without cause. I'm the one who exists from eternity past into eternity future. I'm the one who is always here. And by way of contrast, these Israelites are contingent. They are reliant upon God's constant providence for them. So you and I are inherently needy. We were constructed that way. Your body is made with limitation. You need food and water and sleep. You can only be in one place at one time. We have limits to our memory and knowledge and skills. We're morally compromised. All of us have a sin nature that taints our decisions toward selfishness and rebellion. We're inconsistent and erratic. Even the most disciplined among us are are just prone to this inconsistency. So like Moses this morning, what we need is a God who brings deliverance. Isn't it interesting that Moses' posture of victory was also a posture of surrender? See, today, the sign of having both our hands in the air is a position of surrender. It's the idea that I can't do anything with these hands. You can see I'm doing nothing. Moses' victorious posture is a statement of his inability It's funny, it just feels like today we are in such denial of our weakness. We live in such denial of our weakness today, don't we? 
can't tell you how much heartache waits for us when we think that we're saviors rather than servants. We think about ourselves as saviors and we we put in long hours. We can't say no to situations. Our, Our mood becomes contingent upon our efficiency. And we just view ourselves as central to so much around us. It's like you were you were never meant to be that. I was never meant to be that. What you and I were meant for was not a life as a savior, but a life as a servant, where the master carries the responsibility. And my job is to just faithfully execute the things that he calls me to in every situation. I have to know my limitation. I have to know my weakness. Can I just be honest with you? It's been one really hard thing to figure out for me. When you hit your 30s and 40s and it feels like your world just kind of surrounds you, your work life hits a new pace and it feels like everybody kind of needs you. One of the hardest things is to realize that nobody needs you and you're imminently replaceable. doesn't matter who you are, what you do, I guarantee you someone else can step into your place and do it. I don't mean that to pick a fight with you or uh, to break you down. I just mean to say that we're all people who are needy and there's nothing all that special about us when it really comes down to it. God uses our limitation to bring victory. The second thing is that God promises his justice towards sinners. This is where this text gets particularly hard for us in 2023. We struggle with this kind of paradigm of what's going to happen here in verses 14 and 15 and 16. And I do want to dive into that a little bit, but I want to also bring it to, to bear on the rest of our passage and not just speak about it in isolation. God promises his justice towards sinners. Let's look at verse 14. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Moses is to remind Joshua his kind of understudy of Amalek's future in verse 14. These last few chapters have been interesting. We've seen lots of memorials happen. Right And in uh, chapter 16, uh, they store up the manna uh, so that future generations can remember. In chapter 17, last week, in verse 7, uh, Moses names this these towns, uh, what is it, testing and bitterness or testing and quarreling, I think are what the words mean, Man, uh, Massa and Meribah. But here, God wants Moses to write down a specific truth for remembering, for Joshua to remember. Moses is particularly to share this with Joshua so that he remembers Amalek's future. Again, we see Moses' limitation. He's not going to live forever. He's to pass this on. What specifically is he supposed to pass on? Verse 14, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. We just got to let the weight of that sit on us for a second. 
God has pinpointed the specific people and he said, they're no longer to exist. God is going to fully and finally end the Amalekites. In fact, if we were to fast forward through the Old Testament, we'll kind of see this history play out in the Old Testament. In Judges, the Amalekites are consistently raiding or attacking the Israelites. In Judges 3 and 6 and 7 and 10, they're either raiding and taking from the Israelites their goods and resources, or they're joining up with other foreign armies to attack the Israelites. In the era of kings, the Amalekites kind of come back again. Saul is asked to destroy Amalek in 1 Samuel 15. But Saul fails to do so. And again, it's a test of leadership uh, for these Israelites so that Saul falls short. But when David comes along, he chases down these Amalekites. He destroys them so that only 400 of them remain in 1 Samuel 30. And then in 1 Chronicles 4, we realize that these other 400 people are also destroyed. It comes to bear in the book of Esther where uh, Mordecai, who sets himself against the Jewish people, is a descendant of Agag, an Amalekite. See, these people are constantly pressing against the nation of Israel, opposing God's people. So we ask this question, we bring this to bear this morning as an aside, how is God good to end an entire nation? How is God good to just wipe these people off the planet? First, notice how slowly this development takes place. What God promises here in in Exodus 17 will not take place for another 500 years. God shows his patience with Amalek. The consistent evidence of the Bible is that the Amalekites are opportunistically taking advantage of Israel, and yet no change in heart is taking place in these Amalekites. They're consistently pictured throughout the Scripture as those who are opposing Israel. And nearly 500 years after this prophecy, we would find it to finally take place. Second, God has told us on multiple occasions that the wages of sin is death. Sin is to be dealt with, not glossed over. And for most, sin will cause eternal separation from God. Here, God is good to give us a sense of his love as he warns us. He's warning us through the picture of the Amalekites that sin must be dealt with. Third, Consider that these are many judgments that God is showing us. This destruction of the Amalekites or uh, the destruction of the earth in Genesis 6 or whatever else are pointing forward to a coming judgment in which God will judge all creation through all time. That at the great white throne judgment, all of humanity will stand in line before a righteous and holy God and give an account for what they've done. So God is good to give us a glimpse of his holiness. Fourth, the person who has innocently suffered at the hands of someone who has done such wrongs needs to sense that there is a final justice that's coming. It's funny God speaks to these Israelites later in Deuteronomy. 
And he says this, he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. See, God is saying, you were wronged. And in faithfulness to you, I'm going to deal with this. See, here, God is good to give us a glimpse of his care for the suffering. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a survivor of abuse, or we think about uh, maybe those in foreign countries who are orphaned by war, or those who've been wronged by another in their innocence in any way, shape, or form. God sees and judges. His word is final. See, this world is not so off its axis that the worst of humanity get off scot-free. God will judge, and that should bring some sense of peace to our hearts. Not because we wanted to see justice, we wanted to see someone else suffer, but because we know that God still sees. God is still righteous. We were at a soccer game yesterday. My son is playing, and there's a mom from the other team who's next to us, and she is convinced that her children are being mistreated. And I'm not saying they weren't be. I don't. I don't. They weren't. I. I don't know. But she is very vocal about the fact that her children are being mistreated. And so finally, when the whistle blows, she's her faith in humanity is restored. Right. This ref finally saw what I saw. So we need to know that there's a God who brings justice that does righteousness on the earth. We need to know as people who have been wronged in in contexts of other places, we need to know that there's a God who sees it and is going to act in righteousness and bring justice. See, in short, when we look at this, we were reminded this morning that God's way of bringing justice is far better than our way of not bringing justice. If our frail humanity is too weak, too inconsistent, too slanted, we need a God who will bring justice for us. I I love what Isaiah says, Isaiah chapter 11. And they're speaking about the Messiah, Jesus, who's coming. and, And the statement is made, He shall not judge by what His eyes see or by what His ears hear, but with righteousness He shall judge the poor. You and I are bound up with our justice, with what our eyes see and what our ears hear. And we're so limited. We can take in all of the knowledge of a situation and we're still slanted in our our sense of right and wrong. We can't really bring justice oftentimes. And we need a God who will finally and fully bring justice. I think this conversation is so hard for us because we we sense, we think of ourselves as righteous We're self-righteous people. We think that we can bring justice. And I'm here saying this morning that I don't think we can. I think we need the promise of God to tell us that He will bring justice in His time. And notice how Moses commemorates this in verses 15 and 16. And I love what he does here. 
Moses builds an altar to remember. Look at verse 15. He says, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. What does that mean? The Lord is my banner. It's like the Lord is my flag. The Lord is the thing that I carry around with me that is the identity marker of who I am. It's this thing that says, this is who I'm trusting. And everything Moses is doing here is filled with faith in this holy God. Verse 16, he says, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, right? He's saying, my hand's on the throne. It's like I'm in the presence of God. I'm not lying. What's going to happen here is from generation to generation, God is going to keep battling this people because I know he's holy and I know he's righteous. He's my flag. He's my banner. He's the one I trust in. I know that he's going to bring retribution to this wrong that's been accomplished. I know that God's going to bring justice to this situation. But we might miss something that's happening here. There's a, a slight difference between what God says to Moses and what Moses says in verse 16. Look at what God says in verse 14. Write this as a memorial in a book and to recite it in the years of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In verse 16, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, which is it? Is he going to blot him out or is he going to have continual war? Both are true, right? God is going to fight with these people for 500 years before in the finality of His justice, He will end them. See, amidst Moses' weakness, God shows Himself strong. When Moses literally couldn't lift a hand to help, when he had no power to bring the justice that the Amalekites deserves, when, when Joshua couldn't rout the enemy to the level that God's justice required, God's promise was sufficient. God promises that he will bring about Amalek's end so that Moses and you and I don't have to. You know, the problem with our Messiah complex, our Savior complexes, is this, that we assume the other person to be the problem and ourselves to be the solution. I remember uh, working with a youth group at one point in time, and uh, this young man was dating a girl. And I started to ask him about it. How's that going? What's happening? Yada, yada. And he makes this statement, and he, he kind of pulls back and he says, you know, I just don't think she's as spiritually mature as I am. I wish I could have recorded it. So much arrogance. One thing became true in that moment. If if the Lord was going to address, maybe there was some spiritual immaturity in her, it wasn't going to be through him. That statement almost had disqualified him from being able to be the one to address whatever was going on in her. See, whenever we view ourselves as saviors, not as servants, it's like the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. We're leading from our left foot. It just doesn't work. We have to have a sense of who we are, the inherent weakness that we have, that, that we can't show up and save anyone. 
Our job is to climb up the hill to raise our hands in submission and to watch the Lord win the victory. See, only God is strong enough to bring final justice. And what he does is that he brings both grace and justice into the midst of everything. He's not all grace and he's not all justice. He's full of both. Later on, as Moses will see God, and God will pass before Moses, and he'll proclaim his name to Moses. And he'll say this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Did you hear that split? He's saying, I'm going to be gracious because that's who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But I don't clear the guilty. I don't just overlook sinfulness. God promises as he describes himself that that is who he is. He brings grace and justice that's bound up in his character. And when we see Jesus come to the earth, John describes him as full of grace and truth. That as he's interacting with Pharisees and religious leaders, he's showing them grace, but bringing truth. He's constantly preaching this message of his arrival for the forgiveness of sins. And what it does is it pushes all the way to Calvary, where Calvary becomes the ultimate expression of God's grace and his justice. At Calvary, God punishes sin. You know, Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians. He said, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on, be- on our behalf. That God pours out the fullness of his wrath on Jesus. God whips and beats and crucifies and kills sin. He punishes it to the fullest extent of his holiness. But at Calvary, God extends immeasurable grace. As God has laid his punishment on a substitute, He applies that to his people and extends glorious mercy. See, because God has extended his wrath to his son, it's possible that you and I can receive grace. See, what this does is it lines up perfectly for this idea of a substitute. God has given us a substitute in our place, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's the means by which we uh, claim this promise in Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death, for what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending His Son. See, we are not condemned because He took the punishment of our condemnation. He became sin for us. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He was 
delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justifications. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God has shown you, Christian, his justice and mercy in a singular moment in history. At Calvary, we see the depths of justice, and at Calvary, we see the breadths of his life-giving grace. It's hard for us sometimes because we wander to two poles when we're wronged. We either want to get full vindication and return or we do the super moral thing of trying to be more righteous and saying oh i forgive them the christian our job this morning is to recognize our weakness and leave room for the wrath of god it doesn't push to either of those poles where we try to bring justice or we Uh, kind of vaguely walk over justice and act like it doesn't have to exist. See, victims make poor judges, don't they? You ever talk to somebody who's been wronged and they, they just have a very clear sense of how they're wronged? Our suffering makes it hard to assess with, with clarity what's going on. When someone wrongs us, we're, we're filled with all these wrong-headed ideas, wrong ideas about retribution, or, or sometimes worse, wrong-headed ideas about forgiveness. And if you try to bring justice your own way, I I guarantee you, you'll invariably bring more mess to the situation. Paul encourages us. He tells us to wait for God's wrath. Romans 12, he, he says to repay no one evil for evil. He says, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if we've been wronged, ours is the difficult task of waiting. In these moments, the promises of God take on new color and shape. We learn to trust the Lord's goodness in a different way. We don't want vindictiveness to be the thing that drives us. We don't want to trust in the Lord to bring retribution because we want to see those people suffer but rather we we trust that the Lord is going to vindicate his own name and see the wrongs that have been done. I feel like this is a really hard truth to swallow this morning. And yet, I wonder if there's anything more pertinent. Realize now more than ever that we live in a world that is so filled with hurt. Experience it as a pastor. I watched some of us as we deal with people who have hurt us or wronged us in and, and various degrees and offenses. And one of the things that I sense we struggle with is what do I do with it? How do I interact with this wrong that's been done against me? How do I categorize it? How do I interact with that individual? What do I do? How do I go about it? On its most basic level, the gospel tells us that A saint has been met with grace, and so I might show grace. A sinner is also in need of grace, and I might try and extend grace, but I might also be invited to let the vengeance of God 
address that situation. It's a difficult paradigm for us. Requires faith, patience, trust. I think it's hard for us because it's not something that can be accomplished in a five-minute window. And we have to constantly come back to the the moorings of the gospel and say, how do I understand this situation, Lord? How do I uh, navigate what's happening to me or what has happened to me? Some of you experience suffering that I know nothing about. And I wonder if we might be able to think clearly about these things together. I want to pray to this end that God allows us to be people who trust in God's saving work, that we look for his grace and his justice. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to be people who are weak, recognize our weakness, recognize our limitation, but also see the need for your justice and your kindness. Lord, remind us that you Father, are in ultimate control. You see all things. There's nothing that escapes your eye, and we can trust you. So, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this in those places where we have been wronged and hurt. Help us to bring that hurt and offense to you. Help us not to lean on our own understanding and try to seek our own justice but instead turn it over to your capable, powerful hands. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.